Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to today's episode, Walking Away from the Mob. Today, I'll be speaking with Michael Francis. Michael grew up as the son of Sonny Francis, the notorious underboss of the feared Colombo crime family. Michael, who was a made man himself, is the only high-ranking official of a major crime family to ever walk away from the mob without protective custody and survive. But first, as a little background for our listeners... In 2012, my wife Kelly and I had the pleasure of meeting Michael Francis and hearing his inspiring story at our church. We have been following his journey ever since. We also read his book, Blood Covenant, which details his fascinating story. I'd now like to welcome Michael Francis to our show. How are you, sir? Good to be here. Michael, I'd like to start off by asking you about your family roots. Where did your family originally come from? Well, um, both my mom and dad, both Italian ancestry, and they both happen to be from the same city, just from the same city in Italy, in uh, Naples, Napoli. So my dad actually was born in Naples. My grandparents had come here earlier, but my grandfather and grandmother used to take a trip back to Italy by boat every year. And my dad was born on one of those boat trips in Naples. So, and then my mother was born here in Brooklyn. You know, they both resided in Brooklyn in their early lives. Well, that's interesting. And where were you born, Michael? I was born in Brooklyn also. My wife is also from Brooklyn. It seems like everybody is from Brooklyn that I meet. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, the fourth biggest city in the, in the country, so it's a big, big city. Yes, yes. Tell me something. What are some of your earliest memories growing up? You know, James, I had a lot of good memories um, as a child. You know, my dad was one of uh, 19 kids. And we lived on a, a block of street in Brooklyn and many, many cousins and relatives, obviously, aunts and uncles. We used to get together all the time. So I had some good memories of my very young childhood. You know, my dad started to get in trouble quite a bit in the early 60s and things started to change for us. We, we ran on some, some difficult times with my dad going to trial and, you know, through all the arrests that he had. So life was kind of changing. But you know, I don't complain about my childhood. You know, my, my mom and dad loved us and they did their best, but my dad just got himself in a tough situations and obviously that affects the family. Yeah. On your mom's side of the family, did you have grandparents or aunts and uncles who used to come over to the house and visit, you know, things like that? Oh, yeah. My, my, uh, my grandmother and grandfather, my mom was only uh, 16 when I was born. And my grandparents played, you know, on my mom's side, they played a big role in raising me, actually. You know, there's a lot of story in my family, but so I was very close with my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. You know, we're Italian. We always had family over. Sundays were always big meals. Holidays were always a big deal. Weekends we spent together. So, you know, always had a lot of family around us. And they were all good memories, really good memories. Do you have other brothers and sisters that you grew up with? I do. I'm actually one of seven. So uh, I had uh, two brothers and four sisters. So it's a big family. Were Christmases like a big deal? Was there a lot going on? Was there a lot of hustle bustle in the house? Holidays were always a big deal. Uh, you know, our family did make a big issue out of them. The family was always together. One of the traditions that I got to love and that I still keep in my own house now is that on New Year's Eve, 
Uh, my grandmother actually started that. She always said she wanted all of her children and grandchildren together at 12 o'clock to bring the new year in together. After that, if we wanted to go out, we can go out, but we had to be together at 12 to hug and kiss and make a toast. And, you know, we kept that tradition throughout my childhood and I keep it now even with my children. Oh, that's a great memory. How about neighbors and friends in the neighborhood? Were people always getting together and milling together? You know, in Brooklyn, yes. You know, that was a big deal. I mean, you know, everybody knew everybody. And of course, you know, my grandfather having 19 kids, we were a huge presence in Greenpoint. So uh, yeah, we always used to get together. Long Island, when we moved out there, I was about 10 or 12 years old and um, not as much, but we still had a lot of friends, you know, a lot of neighbor friends. Growing up, did you have, uh, when you were playing ball and things like that, was your dad able to come to some of your games? My dad did come, you know, as an athlete, he loved watching me and he, he would never miss a game. And no matter what he was doing, he would always uh, make it his uh, duty practically to be there. So he was a good cheering section. He'd always have a few of his guys with him. So, you know, uh, he was he was actually the big show there all the time. But uh, yeah, he was well liked in the neighborhood. You know, everybody liked my dad. Yeah, I remember one story that you told about your dad rolling up in his limousine right up onto the ball field. Oh, yeah. He, uh, you know, whenever he would come, he'd have three or four or five of his guys with him. And I always said he'd always come late. So he'd drive right up to the field, walk onto the field with his guys. And I always say the umpire would never call strike three on me when he seen my dad. So he, was, <laughs> he was good for my batting average. When you had your friends around and things like that, did you start to notice or did your friends start to notice that what your dad did for a living might be a little different from what their dads did for a living? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, my father was so high profile and had so much publicity back then. He was kind of like the John Gotti of his day back in the early 60s. So he was always in the media, always in the newspaper. So, you know, he couldn't hide who he was. I mean, everybody knew it uh, early on in my life. Yeah. Now, I understand you were a pretty good student in school. Yeah, I was pretty good. I was going to be a doctor. So, you know, you had to have fairly good grades to do that. So, yeah, I was, I was pretty good. And you were also enrolled in a pre-med program, I think, at Hofstra. That's correct, yes. I was a pre-med student. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened to change direction? Well, my dad had, in the early 60s, a series of indictments, very serious indictments. He went to trial three times in the early to mid-60s, um, was acquitted each time in state cases. But then he was indicted in federal court in 1966, went to trial in 67, was convicted and sentenced to 50 years in prison. And in 1970, my dad went off to Leavenworth Penitentiary to start doing that sentence. He lost all his appeals. And that's when I was a pre-med student at Hofstra University. And, um, you know, I was devastated when my dad went away because he was 50 when he went in. Figured he had 50 on top of that. It was, we thought it was a death sentence for him. He'd never come out. So things started to change for me at that point in time. You know, I was interested in helping my dad get out of prison. We had to hire lawyers and we had to hire investigators and we have obviously needed money. It's very expensive to defend yourself in a situation like that. And Joe Colombo, who was the boss of the Colombo family, obviously, he kind of took me under his wing. You know, the Italian-American Civil Rights League that he had started back then, I was very active in trying to help my dad through the league. So one thing led to another and I lose interest in school and, and end up, uh, you know, my dad, you know, proposing me for membership in that life. That must have been a decision that wasn't a real easy one for you, was it? Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, 
yes, because I wanted to help my dad and I knew that I needed to do whatever he wanted me to do to do that. No, because, you know, I did have, uh, I don't want to say my heart set, but I did, you know, have intentions of going to medical school and being a doctor one day. And, and so that dramatically changed. That was off the books, obviously. So it, it was tough, but, you know, again, wanting to help my dad, I figured that, that was my role in life. I needed to do that. So you had a real strong affection for your dad. Yes. Yeah. What did it mean to follow your dad into his business? What did that mean for you? Well, you know, for me, it was different. You know, a lot of guys that get into that life, it's something that they aspire to be throughout their teen years and into their, into their adulthood. But that wasn't the case with me. I mean, I didn't want to be a mob guy. That wasn't what I wanted to be. I was an athlete in school. I was going to be a doctor. So it was a dramatic change for me. I mean, I knew who my dad was and I knew what his life was about to a degree, but uh, it's not what I really wanted. So it was really a life-changing experience for me to go that route. You know, but again, I said, Dad, if this is what's going to help you, then point me in that direction. I'm ready to go. When you entered that life, they call it being a made man. Yes. So you were making a commitment then to that particular type of life that was a very serious commitment, right? Yeah, I mean, you actually take a blood oath when, when they feel that you've proved yourself worthy to become a member of that life. You know, it's a very solemn ceremony. It was something I took very seriously back then. I, I take it seriously, even though I don't consider myself a member of that life anymore. You know, you don't sign a contract. There's no retirement age. I mean, what I know about the life is in my heart, my mind. I spent over 20 years in it. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's very intense. Yeah, so you got into some business dealings. You refer to it as, uh, I guess, some legitimate, some not legitimate. And what kind of businesses were you in when you were in that lifestyle? You know, I was fortunate. I had a head for business early on. I didn't realize it until I was put into a situation. But, you know, it just kind of came naturally to me. And, you know, I started out really in the automobile business. To make a long story short, I had two auto dealerships, a Chevrolet and a Mazda dealership. I had leasing companies. You know, I got at one point, I got into the producing movies and uh, constructing some contracting through the union involvement that I had. So I was, I was very aggressive and I got into a lot of different things, both legitimate and illegitimate. I mean, all of us guys that had money, we always lent money out on the street, you know, uh, usurious rates of whatever the market would bear, 2% a week, 3% a week. And so I was doing that. Never got into the drug business. Um, we weren't allowed to be involved in drugs. And I personally hated anything to do with drugs. So that was not for me. But, um, you know, I got a little bit gambling and I had, you know, bookmakers that worked for me. Again, traditional mob stuff. And then, you know, the most lucrative racket I ever got involved in was the wholesale gasoline business. And long story short, that was both legal and illegal. And we were defrauding the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. It turned out to be a very significant, a huge money-making operation for me for uh, almost seven, eight years that I ran it. So you talked about being in the movie business. I understand that being in the movie business led to you meeting your wife, Camille. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I was actually producing a movie in 85 in South Florida. It was a uh, dance movie, you know, a musical. And uh, she was one of the dancers that we brought in from L.A. to work in the film. We brought cast and crew and, and uh, the dancers in from L.A. And uh, she was, you know, 20 years old when I met her. And uh, I saw her coming out of a pool. I was throwing a party for the whole cast and crew. 
and in the back of the hotel that I had everybody staying in and saw her come out of the pool and that was it. You know, I said, this she's for me. And uh, here we are 36 years later, we're still together. And she's been my wife for 35 years now. So did uh, I hear that you were stood up a few times by your soon to be wife? Yeah, I mean, I uh, a couple of times I, I invited her out and she would say yes, and then she wouldn't show up. You know, she did that to me for quite, for quite a few times, but uh, I was determined. I knew I, I wanted her and I was going to win her over. It took me a while, but I did it. I bet as a as a mob guy and where you were at that point in your career that it was kind of unusual for somebody to say no to you, right? Yeah, and that's that's what really got me. I liked it, you know. You like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a guy that likes challenges, you know, so I thought that was great. And uh, she separated herself from the rest of the, the, the crew there and cast. And, uh, you know, there was something special about her that I noticed right away. And of course, you know, she was a young Christian girl and it was through her that I eventually uh, came to my faith. Now, you've not only your wife, but you also met her mother, who I understand had quite an impact on you. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, her mother was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. And she, uh, you know, she prayed for me all the time when I first met her. And she uh, she prayed for me continuously. And between, you know, uh, Irma, my mother-in-law, and Camille, my wife, I didn't have a chance. You know, their prayers and their, uh, you know, just putting the Lord in, in front of me all the time. And, and it, won, it won me over, no doubt. Funny you think about that. It makes me think about my grandmother, who was about four feet, nine inches tall, little Pentecostal lady. And she used to corner me when I was a kid and ask me if I'd given my heart to Christ. And I used to get backed into the wall and say, oh, yeah, grandma. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I was all nervous about her. And, you know, I love my grandma. Later did I realize that, you know, she was praying for me every day. And she really impacted my life later. And I started to think, even to this day, about how much she prayed for me, like your mother-in-law prayed for you. I understand that her prayer book was the size of a phone book. Is that true? Yeah, she was a prayer warrior, you know. Anybody that she believed needed prayer, she would put in her prayer book, and she would diligently pray for them every day. And I was one of them. I was at the top of the list because, you know, she knew her daughter was in love with me, and she wanted to make sure that, you know, I had the Lord in my heart. So she, uh, she, did, her, she, did, she did good work, I can tell you that. Oh, yeah. So the story is then that you meet this amazing woman with her amazing mom and you fall in love. And then I understand you had to go to jail. Is that true? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I became very high profile myself and, you know, I had a number of arrests. I actually was indicted seven times uh, throughout my mob career. Some very serious cases, but fortunately, I, I was acquitted in five of those cases and um, I took a plea in two. Taking a plea was part of my strategy to walk away from that life, move out to California, marry Camille, and try to just separate myself from that life. And I knew that part of it would, would have to be doing some jail time. So, you know, I had a 10-year prison sentence. I pled to a racketeering case that involved this gasoline wholesale business. And uh, I pled to racketeering. I got a 10-year sentence. I had a $15 million restitution. And... Um, you know, I married Camille before I went to prison, moved out to California. You know, hopefully when I got out, you know, I was going to be able to separate myself from that life and just live happily ever after in California. Didn't work out that way that easily, <laughs> but it was a good plan. <laughs> so what happened when you were in jail? I understand you 
here you were introduced to this Christian faith and you had time to think about it. And what was that process like? Yeah, it was, uh, I was in lockdown. I was in a hole, uh, solitary for almost three years. And I was a, a prison guard that slipped me a Bible the first night that I went in. And it had a real impact on me that night. As a matter of fact, you know, there were two verses that really struck me. And uh, I wear those two verses on my arms. I got Proverbs 16, 7 here and Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 here. Those are the two verses that, you know, I believe really the Holy Spirit spoke to me through on one of the most difficult nights of my life. You know, for me, it was a process. I mean, I, I was in the hole for three years almost, and I read my Bible, you know, diligently. If you see my prison Bible, more of my notes than scripture on there. And I also had my wife send me in a number of books on every faith, because I was really in a search for the truth. I, I wanted to know that if I was committing my life again to something, that it was genuine and real and sincere, and I was making the right move for myself. You know, the evidence for me, I'm, I'm a big guy on evidence, you know, my life is all about evidence. And the evidence for Christianity was overwhelming, in my view. And I don't like to knock other faiths, and I'm not doing that. But I really did study them. And, um, you know, we serve a living God. And I believe the Jesus story is absolutely true. It's credible, it's backed up and supported by, you know, solid evidence, as far as I'm concerned. And, um, what I've seen the Lord do in my life and in the lives of others over the years, or I attribute everything I have to that because it could have been a lot worse for me. I mean, I could have been dead or in prison for the rest of my life. And I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for me. And that's why I'm here. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's been a real, uh, it didn't happen overnight. You know, it wasn't just, hey, you know, I'm accepting Lord because I need something. It was a, a real process that the Holy Spirit worked on me and gave me everything that I needed uh, to follow him. Now, when you got out of jail and are you, you're now married to Camille at this point? Yeah, we got married just before I went in. Yes. Okay. So now you're out and you've, in effect, you've left the mob life and you've got this newfound faith. What did life look like to you then? What did you think you were going to do? Well, it was difficult because, you know, people from my former life were very upset with me for walking away. You're not allowed to do that. You know, I had people looking to hurt me and uh, I had to be very careful at that point in time because everybody thought I was going to become a witness. Normally when people leave that life, you know, they join the government and they start testifying against people. But that's not what I was interested in doing at all. Uh, but people didn't know that. I had a you know a rough time for a couple of years with people looking for me and so on and so forth, but was able to get through that. And then it's starting a new life out in California. And, you know, I mean, I always had a head for business, so I knew I would start something. But, you know, the way it happened, God just led me to ministry. I certainly didn't have that in mind. I didn't even know, you know, how to start a ministry. It wasn't for that. But, you know, the pastor of my church who had married Camille and I, who I hardly knew, Dr. Myron Taylor, he's passed on now, I love Dr. Taylor. You know, when I got out of prison, he said, Michael, you have a great story, would you give your testimony to our congregation? And I couldn't refuse him because he would send me books in, in prison and the congregation was so good to my wife and children when I was away, you know, for our little baby, one little baby we had. You know, they really propped her up and they really supported her and prayed for her. So I said, Dr. Taylor, anything you want, I gave a series of six talks to our congregation on subject matter that he had laid out that had to do with my testimony. And it just caught on from there. I started getting called from different pastors and 
you know, that was 25 years ago, and I've been speaking ever since all over the world. So, you know, God had a plan, and I guess that's what was uh, in store for me. And then just so many opportunities have come my way as a result, James. It's been very blessed. Yeah, I heard a story on your one of your YouTube shows where you were telling about when you went to visit to encourage the youth at the detention center. I think it was in Florida back in the 90s, late 90s. What happened then? Do you remember that? Yeah, I was actually working with uh, Major League Baseball at the time. I was speaking to athletes, uh, all the pro athletes, about the dangers of gambling. And we were in spring training. I'd done that for the last 20-some-odd years, too. The head of security, Kevin Hallinan, asked me if I would stop in a youth detention center in Manatee County, Florida, and address the young you know, uh, youth offenders there. And I said, sure. Never had done that before, but I said, sure, I'll do it. And when we got there, the warden said, you know, you got 15 minutes. And I said, warden, what could I do in 15 minutes? I said, you know what, I'd rather not go in. And he said, uh, well, let's see what happens. So I was there almost three hours. And um, I had a tremendous impact on those young men. It really moved me because when I left there, I said, you know what, there's nothing more I can do for these young men. I got them on a high now. And then I'm just leaving them. And so I, I made it a point um, that I would you know, do my best always to visit prisons and juvenile defenders and even, you know, adult inmates. I've been doing that for the last 20 some odd years. But I said I would never go in unless I had a ministry behind me that would support uh, my effort in there at that time. And so most churches have a prison ministry. And, and so um, I've been, you know, very blessed to have that ministry to bring church and Youth for Christ and all of these great organizations in with me. And so I can lead these young men and women to an organization that will help them. Because I believe with all my heart that discipleship inside a prison and discipleship outside of prison is life-changing uh, for these young men and women the way it was for me. You know, if you look at the recidivism rate on Christian discipleship programs, um, the recidivism rate is less than 5%. And the national rate is over 60% for non-discipleship programs. So it's obviously working. The Lord is working. Definitely, definitely. I did want to ask you a little bit about your dad again, because uh, I understand he passed away earlier this year in February. And I'm sorry to hear that. And uh, wasn't he 103 years old? Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. He was 103. He spent quite a bit of time in prison, actually, up until, I think, a few years ago. Yeah, he was released in 2017 at the age of 100. Wow. So he was the oldest inmate in the system when he was released. And what kind of discussions did you and your dad have in your more recent years when he knew what kind of work you were in today and what you were doing and what you believed? What did he think about that? He, he was proud of it. I mean, he, uh, he was very happy that I was able to turn my life around. It wasn't like that initially. He was very upset with me when I walked away, you know, and he took a very hard position with me. But, you know, that changed in, in later years. And I think when he realized I wasn't hurting anybody and I just wanted to preserve my family, because I sat down with my dad and I said, Dad, what you don't understand is that your involvement in that life destroyed our family. Him and my mom, you know, my mom was 33 years without a husband and their relationship really soured. I mean, my mom wanted a divorce. It just, it was, it, it just soured, you know, when you're away from your your husband for that long. And, you know, I had a sister that died of an overdose of drugs. Oh, I'm sorry. A brother that was a, you know, a drug user all his life. He actually 
went into the witness protection program, cooperated with the government against my father. So, you know, the family was a mess as a result of his involvement. And I said, Dad, I don't want to do that to my family. And this life is only going to lead to destruction. I said, so I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm not mad at anybody, but I have to do what I have to do for my family. And, you know, he got it after that. But initially he was upset, but I think he understood because he loved my family too. He loved my, you know, my kids or his grandchildren. And uh, so, I mean, the relationship with he and I was never the same, but it was a lot better. You know, I mean, we, we, we came to terms with everything. So that was important for me. That must have been, that was a very courageous decision you made to have that honest discussion with your dad about you wanting to protect your family. It takes a lot of courage on your part. I'm sure it's comforting to you to know that in his last years or later years, he just loved you for you and he loved your family and he wanted the best for you. So that's a good good thing to remember at the end of his life. Yeah, it was good. You know, honestly, James, one of the, the guilts that I do carry around is I don't know that I worked hard enough to lead him to Christ. It was just, it was that kind of, I don't know, a little barrier there for that because I, I can't explain it. Although I did uh, send a chaplain in to see him and she spent three hours with him and told me that not only did she read the Bible, but he did accept Christ. So, um, you know, that was a couple of years before while he was in prison. So I, I believe that. And uh, but I, I wish that I would have worked a little harder with him and my mom. Now, my mom, I believe, accepted Christ, but I don't know. It was just it was hard to share with them. That's not an excuse. That's that's one burden that I do carry around because I think I could have done a better job with both of them. Now, the flip side of that is, I don't know if you remember, I had never missed an opportunity to have people pray for him. And we always would pray. So I think between the prayer and the chaplain, I think that, uh, uh, you know, hopefully I did my work. Oh, you did. Well, you loved your dad. You've been very consistent about that yeah. in everything you've said. I'm just really happy about your ministry. I just think it's wonderful. And again, we've never, never lost sight of you since uh, we saw you eight years ago, sort of been following you. And I know you've had some shows on History Channel, I think Netflix, you've been on some documentaries, and you've, you can tell some really interesting stories, I'll tell you. So we appreciate that. I did want to ask you one last thing about your dad is, what do you think your dad would have wanted his legacy to be? You know, I think, uh, I think his legacy was that he was a stand-up guy, that he kept his oath throughout his life. I mean, he got a 50-year prison sentence. He never cooperated with the government. He never, you know, snitched, if you want to use that word, on anybody. And, and that was very, very important to him. So I think that's his legacy. That's the legacy that he wanted. And I think it's admirable that he, he did, you know, he just died with his boots on. I always say that. But, you know, the flip side of that, which I tried to tell him, Dad, is that you sacrificed your family. So... You know, um, but my dad w would always say to me, you know, it wasn't my fault because he was framed. And I believe this, the case that my dad did all that time of, I believe he was innocent of. It was a bad case. So he would say to me, if I didn't get framed, none of this would have happened to our family because I would have been there. And I said to him, dad, I know that, but you weren't framed because you were a doctor, a lawyer, or a priest. You were framed because you're a street guy. And that's the risk we take being on the street. I said, and you know, it's very harmful to our family, devastating to our families. 
you know, he would never take responsibility for the devastation in our family. And I, I had a little of an issue with him with that because he would kind of blame every, everything else. And, you know, but it wasn't his fault. He wouldn't accept it. And I think, you know, it was just hard for him because maybe there was guilt there and it was hard for him to, to verbalize it, you know? So I understand, but, but I think he got his legacy. He died with his boots on. He, he's a stand-up guy. Everybody that talks about him is that, you know, he was the last of the, the real stand-up guys. And I think that's what he wanted to be known for. I want to know what kind of things are you up to today? Can you tell our listeners about what you're doing today? Yes. You know, uh, I'm, I'm obviously still speaking all over the world. Obviously not this year with COVID. You know, a lot of things have been moved back till next year. Uh, and I'll continue to do that. Um, I've started a YouTube channel now that's been, you know, pretty successful. We've picked up oh, about 275,000 subscribers in four months. So we're, we're, uh, we're doing good on that. Um, I have a TV series in development now with a major production company, Kennedy Marshall. I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm writing a new book. It's called The Mafia Democracy. And um, it's a political book, but I think it's very timely now. I think it's, it's time we make people aware about what's really going on in our system from my perspective. And uh, so we're doing that. I also, um, I know this sounds like a lot, but you know, I've, I've had a partner now for about 35 years who's been in the restaurant business. And in the last year and a half, we started a, uh, a pizza franchise called Slices. And we have four stores now, and uh, we're, we're starting to grow on that. So that's been a big endeavor on my part. And, uh, you know, starting the podcast and just staying active. That's it. So so is the pizza restaurant Slices going to be, are you going to have one of them in Jersey, I hope? We're going to have them everywhere. We have a lot of uh, franchisee applicants right now. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're looking to go all over the country, all over the world, if it takes us there. So, uh, but it's a great product. We, we did two years of research. My partner did before we came up with the system and the, and the pizza is delicious. It's great. So we're excited about it. And uh, we're opening up a store here where I live in Newport Beach. And we got a big one going up in San Mateo. We have one in San Francisco, another in L.A. And we got franchisees now that we're running through all over the country. So we'll see. That's great. Also, can people find out more about you on michaelfrancis.com? Yes. Now I'm on all the social media platforms and my name. Uh, YouTube now, again, is my name. And uh, we're putting a lot of content up on the channel. So, you know, a lot happening. And, um, you know, but, but my heart is in ministry. And um, I know God will open those doors again. I have a lot of uh, dates coming up next year. So we, uh, we just keep moving forward. Well, thank you. And I want to end with this question. Michael, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, I believe uh, good husband, good father, uh, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. That's, you can't ask for much more, you know, I mean, in life. Um, you know, I don't want to be known for being a, you know, a good mob guy or any of that, you know, just a good husband, good father, faithful follower of Jesus. Because if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, it covers all bases. You know, you uh, people will see the, the work that you did as a result of that. That's it. Well, Michael, you're an amazing guy. And I just want to thank you for your honesty, your testimony, your story. It has impacted many people. I know it impacted my wife and I. And when you spoke at our church, people, you couldn't hear a pin drop in that place when you were speaking. And it was I mean, it was humorous. There was a lot of laughter in it. Uh, but there were some lot, very serious moments in it that touched a lot of people. And thank you for all the work you're doing with young people and, and businesses. And 
anywhere where you're encouraging people. One of the things on this podcast, as I, I think I mentioned before, was we want to tell stories and stories, particularly stories that inspire people. And you certainly do inspire people. So I want to thank you again for your time. And I hope uh, this year, once this COVID starts to let up, that all your endeavors will be very successful. And I can't wait to try out the pizza at the Slices. Yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy it, James. You're, are you in Jersey now? I'm in Jersey right now. And you know, we got the best pizza in the country here, you know? Well, I got to tell you, I know that. You know, when my partner came to me and he said, Michael, I want to go into the pizza business. I said, Tony, come on. I said, what's going to separate us from all the great pizza places out there? He said, I'm going to do a year and a half, two years of research and come back to you. And as you remember, we're both Brooklyn boys. Got to be good. Otherwise... But uh, he, he put a great formula together. Every product we have is from Italy. It's, uh, it's, it's just great. I'm, I'm telling you, I was extremely impressed. And uh, I think people are going to love it. Everybody that's tasted it in our San Francisco store, they love it. L.A., we can't open yet. We've been ready to open for months. But uh, And Newport Beach, the same. Hopefully, we can open up the end of this month. And uh, we're going to make our mark. Well, thank you again, Michael. So for all our listeners, until next time, Keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.